Good morning. Let's turn to Psalm 51 together. We're going to continue the series, the message we started last week, Devastating Restoration. When we think of devastation, we tend to think of pain, destruction, damage. But the word devastating can also mean extremely powerful and effective. And that's what we're looking at, the devastating restoration that God gives us. It's extremely powerful and effective in our lives. When God restores, he restores completely. He restores fully. So last week, we looked at the crater of destruction and devastation that David created And what he was looking at as he wrote this psalm, Psalm 51. David had committed adultery. Then he tried to cover it up with deception by calling Uriah home, hoping he could just kind of cover it up and no one would be any the wiser. When that didn't work, he then sent a note to Joab to have Uriah killed in battle purposely. And after Uriah was struck down in battle, David took Bathsheba as his wife. And then we saw how God sent a prophet called Nathan. And Nathan confronted David over this sin. He told David that what he had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that because of this evil, God was going to send calamity to his home. God was going to send calamity to his household and his life. The sword, he says, will never depart from your family. Meaning, you are going to reap the violence that you sowed into Uriah's life by murdering him. And furthermore... Nathan tells him, you took his wife in secret and someone close to you is going to take your wives and have sex with them in broad daylight in public. Referring to his own son, Absalom, who would do that later on. Devastating judgment, devastating consequences. And I am sure this was incredibly painful for David to hear. David could have had Nathan killed. He had full authority. He could have silenced Nathan by having him imprisoned or struck down. But instead, David says, does something that is rather unusual for people with authority, especially the kind of authority he has. David repents. He just repents. He doesn't offer any excuses. He doesn't blame anybody. He just repents. I have sinned against the Lord. And then he sat down and he wrote Psalm 51. The inscription reads, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. I want us to read all of Psalm 51 together slowly and prayerfully because this is a prayer of repentance. 
And then we're going to unpack it a little bit. But I, I want to, as we read this, if God is convicting your heart of sin, let this be a prayer that you pray from the heart to the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean, and wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God and my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, O God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for examples such as David's of humility and repentance. We thank you for your allowing us an honest look into the flaws of a man that you raised up and loved so deeply because it gives us hope. This morning, Lord, pray, I pray that you will soften our hearts before your word, that you will help us to receive your word as fertile ground. that, Lord, we will welcome the searchlight of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever thought about the difference between King Saul and King David. I wonder if you've ever wondered about why it is that uh, their treatment from God was so different. Both kings messed up. Both kings sinned. 
I think it could be argued that David's sin was perhaps more grievous than King Saul's sin. And yet God said to Saul, I'm taking the throne away from your family. I would have given it to your family forever, but I'm taking it away from you, and I'm going to give your th the throne forever to another family. And he said to David, I'm giving the throne. My throne shall never depart from your lineage. Someone from your lineage will sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. Of course, he's talking about Jesus from the line of David. Why? Taking it from Saul, giving it to David, when both of them had sinned seriously. Why does it say that God rejected Saul, but later on God would say David was a man after his heart? Why does God treat them so differently? Why does God hold Saul's sin against him and give David a clean slate? One word, repentance, repentance. David repented of his sin. Saul made excuses for his sin. David said, against you and you only, God, I have sinned. Saul said, God, Samuel, make me look good in front of the people. I know I've sinned, but make me look good in front of the people. Saul was aware of what people thought. David was aware of what God thought. Repentance is a powerful thing. And brothers and sisters, it is an essential component to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think, I think we in the modern church tend to forget that a little bit. I think we, we tend to emphasize faith, which is good, because it is essential. We are saved by faith, by grace through faith. But I think we tend to leave out the repentance component. And yet from the very beginning, the apostles preached faith and repentance as the twin sisters of salvation. In Peter's very first message before thousands of people in Acts chapter 2, he closes his message by saying to the crowd, by urging the crowd, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, he's calling them to faith, but that faith is to express itself through repentance. Without repentance, there's no genuine faith. Because repentance means to have a change of mind. It means doing a 180. Believing in Jesus Christ means turning from sin and turning to Christ with faith. And that is repentance. It's a 180. Believing in Jesus Christ isn't just, I'm going to just keep doing what I'm going to do, and I'm going to add a little Jesus to my life. That is not faith. It is, I am sick of finding my life in sin I am sick of trying to find my life through indulging my flesh and doing that which God says is sinful. I am, I am empty and, and hollow and miserable 
And I am turning to Jesus Christ as my only hope, my only Savior, my only way of salvation. I am turning from and I am turning to. That's repentance. That's repentance. So I hope you see in that repentance has two directions. It has two directions. It's turning from sin, but it's turning to God. It's turning from disobedience to God, and it's turning to obedience to God. It's turning from doubt and unbelief, and it's turning to faith and trust in God. And we see that in this beautiful psalm. David demonstrates. So he confesses, and then he expresses faith. Repentance isn't just confessing the sin, it's expressing faith in God. I want to share just, uh, I think, four ways that we see this played out in Psalm 51. David acknowledges or he confesses his sin, but he, that his sin is great. David's aware his sin is great. He confesses that, but he believes God's cleansing power is greater. Verse 1, have mercy on me, God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. That's the confession. Confession, confession. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Confession, confession, I have sinned. Against you, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. David is so aware of his sinfulness. The devastation around him, the lives that he has devastated, the harm that he has created, make that very, very clear to David. But David is even more aware of God's mercy and love and compassion and God's ability to restore what he has damaged. David is convinced that as great as his sin is, God's ability to cleanse that sin is greater. At the age of 82, John Newton, the slave ship captain who came to faith in Jesus Christ during a terrible storm, the author of the wonderful hymn Amazing Grace, said these words, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. We must not get stuck on the first. We must not just get stuck on the first. We must not think that repentance is simply, I am a horrible sinner. I am a terrible person. I have blown it and messed up. I cannot be used. I can't be. We would we can't get stuck on that first part. We should admit that. I am a great sinner. Jesus didn't die 
because I had a little bit of sin that needed to be tweaked. He died because I am a great sinner and I need the power of cleansing such as no other agent in the universe could provide. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. That's our hope. That's our faith. So David asked for more than forgiveness of his sin. He asked for cleansing. In verse 1, blot out, blot out my transgressions. In verse 2, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop was used in the Old Testament. It's a plant. It's kind of a mint. It's in the mint family. And they would sprinkle blood. The priests would sprinkle blood or cleansing upon people with hyssop. The first time hyssop is used in the Bible is in Exodus when they are preparing for the Passover. They took hyssop and they sprinkled the blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over their home. It's a symbol of us taking hyssop and sprinkling the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ on the doorposts of our hearts so that the angel of death might pass over us and we might live. Cleanse me with hyssop. Sprinkle that blood on me. Sprinkle that cleansing water of your word on me that I and I. He doesn't say, and I hope I'll be clean. He says, and I will be clean. That's faith. That's faith. If you, believer, have traced your, placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are more than just forgiven, like like the sin removed. You are cleansed. You are clean. You are whole. You are washed. Sometimes Christians will say something like, I know I've been forgiven, but I still feel dirty. I still feel the shame. Let me just say this, if that's you. If you feel, I know in my head, you know, in what Ken said earlier, the longest distance, I know in my head I've been forgiven, but I still feel the shame of what I've done. I still feel the guilt of what I've done. I still feel dirty. I want to encourage you to believe God. Believe that God has cleansed you of that shame. Believe that God has washed you of that guilt. Believe that God has cleansed your soul with the powerful blood of Christ. Wash me and I will be clean. I will be clean. We are clean, believer in Christ, in Christ. Yeah. There comes that point we feel the guilt and conviction of our sin and we want to confess it and repent of it, but don't live in the place of guilt. Don't live in a place of repentance. Believe God has cleansed you as you have asked him for because the blood of Christ, the Lamb, has been sprinkled on your heart. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's all Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, 
having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold on swervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So we approach God confidently, draw with firm assurance, because we have been sprinkled clean. Our conscience, our life, our body has been washed with the blood of Christ. And so we hold on swervingly to that confession. And that's a part of repentance. The second thing I want to point out in this psalm is David is honest about his misery, but he asked God to restore his joy. <clears throat> you see, David was a joyful person. He was a, a dynamo. He was a dynamo. And he had so much joy. He lived life at full tilt. At one point, as a brand new king, he decides, and you're bringing in the ark, he decides he's going to dance before the Lord, and, and he danced down the street. And here's what happened. As he's dancing and twirling and wildly dancing before the Lord, and he's not even, he's not even wearing a lot of clothing. You know, he's wearing something, but he's not wearing a lot of clothing. So, and his wife, Michael, looks at him, and she despises him, and when he comes, she says, you have made yourself quite foolish in front of everybody. Even the maidservants are going to mock you for how foolish you have looked. And David, living life at full tilt before the Lord, he says, he says, hey, honey, I wasn't dancing for you. And I wasn't dancing for them. It was before the Lord that I was dancing. This was between me and God. But he says, I will tell you this. Those maidservants, they will honor me. They will honor me because I honor God. This was a guy that knew joy, sucked in joy, lived joy, danced with joy. And now... David has added to what he wants. He's gotten everything he wants. He looked at a beautiful woman. He found a way to get her to come to him. And then he had her husband murdered and put out of the way. And now she is his wife. David got everything he wanted. Everything he wanted. And isn't that the secret to the happy life? To get everything you want. Absolutely not. David now is absolutely miserable. That's what sin does. It promises us so much and it delivers so much misery. It tells us, we're going to make you happy. It, it, it ends up hollowing out our soul. Sin brings pleasure for a short time and then misery, emptiness, guilt, horrible things, joylessness, for a long time. David could not escape what he had done. Every minute of every day, this once joyful man felt guilty, he felt condemned. He could feel the fearful gaze of a holy God looking upon his life, and it haunted him. That's why in verse 3 he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I am so aware of my sin, and I know that 
even though it hurt other people tremendously, when it comes down to it before a holy God, it is you that I have sinned against. The weight of God's hand pressing down him, he says it was like crushing his bones. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt, and I'm not talking about trials, because trials have their own pressing, right? Trials can press us, and, but I'm talking about guilt. I'm talking about hidden shame that presses down till our bones feel. And for the person who's addicted to something, they hate it and they love it. They want it, they crave it, but they hate it. It's destroying their life, but they love it. It's crushing their life, crushing their bones, crushing their joy, crushing their families, crushing their life. Of, it's crushing them to death. That's what David is feeling. His bones being crushed by the weight and there is no joy left, no gladness left. We will never be able to sin our way to happiness. There's no way you'll ever sin your way to happiness. That's why sin focuses us on the immediate and never tells us what's down the road, the consequences. It sucks away our joy. True repentance helps us get right with God. It helps us get right with God, and that has a restorative effect on our joy. I can imagine, and I get the sense that when David came, or Nathan came to David and said, you are the man, David is like, he vomits out all this guilt. Sorry for the, you know, graphic idea there, but he vomits out all this shame and guilt and all that's been in his heart all these years. I have sinned against the Lord. And what a relief to finally get it out. To take this thing that was hidden under the cloak of secrecy. Although the fact is, I think most of the people in the kingdom already knew about it, that it had happened. But to take this thing he was trying to hide and bring it into the light and say, I am the man. I am guilty. Oh, what a relief to bring it to God. Do a miracle in my heart. Take this dirty heart and make it clean again. Come back, Lord. I miss you. You see, sin destroys and damages our relationship and fellowship with God. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it does not break your relationship with God, but it does break our fellowship with God. It does cause God to feel distant. It does. And that's what's happened to David. God didn't stop loving David, but David could not feel the presence of God. He couldn't, he couldn't feel the warmth and the joy. He's like, come back, God. Come back. Make me joyful again. Make me pure again. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Not from me. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Devastating restoration includes a restoring of the joy of our salvation. The joy of our salvation. I want you to think about that. If you're trusting in Christ, you are saved. You have eternal life to look forward to. You have the kingdom of Jesus that he's going to welcome you into. 
You have forever and ever and ever. No more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more, no more sin, no more darkness, no more none of that. All light and life and joy and gladness and, and amazing beyond what we could think of, that's yours. That is waiting for you. Forever and ever and ever. And if you are trusting in Christ, there ain't nothing. There ain't no power. There ain't no devil. There's no sin. There's no nothing that can break or take that from you. For Christ has paid for your sins. Now, here's what I want to ask you to do. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. The joy of my salvation. To look forward to live with the reality of that today. You're going through a hard time. The hard time cannot be compared to the wonder of what Christ is waiting for you. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Third point, and the last two are going to be short. David recognizes his sin has caused others to mock his God, but he asks God to use him to help others turn back to God. We're talking about devastating restoration. I mean, he's asking for it all. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God, my Savior. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. I might have skipped a little something there, but you get the idea. David prays. He knows that this terrible chapter has caused people to mock his God. His fall from grace, his sin, this corrupted thing he has done, it has caused people to scorn his God. It has hurt his testimony. And David is saying, take this terrible chapter of my life and use it for good. Let me help others. I lost my way. I lost my way. I turned from God. But now, O oh God, restore to me that relationship. But he doesn't stop there. Now help me also to help others who have also lost their way, who have also turned away, who have, who have gotten far from God. Help me to turn their hearts back to God. I love that. Rest, devastating restoration isn't God just working in us. It's God working through us. You have an area where you blew it. God forgave you. Now God can use you in that area to help others. To give hope to others. To turn their hearts back to God. The last point that I see in this, and there's so much more we could unpack, but... David repents of religious phoniness and offers God his sincerely broken heart. I, I imagine that for these months, and it's months between the time when he killed Uriah and took Bathsheba, it's months, it's not days, it's months before Nathan comes and confronts him. And I don't think David changed his daily routine that much. He still went to the temple. He still, thank you, Jesus, you know, and, and, and all of that. But here he's repenting of the religious phoniness and saying, God, I want to give you a sincere and broken heart. Verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. 
My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Just to explain, in David's day, the way you got right with God when you sinned, you offered a sacrifice to God. A lamb, a dove, a bull. Um, God's people offered sacrifices constantly to God. That was their way of kind of getting rid of sin and getting right with God. And that was instituted by God, and it was a foreshadowing of the once-for-all sacrifice that would be made for our sin in Jesus Christ. So that was instituted by God. When you sin, bring a sacrifice. But what David is saying here, what happened over time is that people would come and they were sincerely, God, forgive us, forgive us. Then their hearts began to harden. They began to sin, they began to sin, they began to sin. They turned away from God, but they kept up the sacrifices. So now they're committing sin here, and oh yeah, we're doing sin. And it's like, okay, let's offer this sacrifice to God. Thank you, God, for forgiveness. Let's go and sin. And then let's offer a sacrifice to God. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness. We're going to really sacrifice some extra today. We got blood flowing, animals dying. We're doing all kinds of things for God here. And, uh, but we're going to just keep on sinning and sinning and sinning. And God finally said, your sacrifices disgust me. I don't want them. The burnt smell is a stench in my nose. Why? Not because he had asked for it. Because they were not giving them sincerely. It was just a religious ritual to make up for the sin that they were just carrying on with. David says, I'm not going to offer you a sacrifice right now. See, we we can substitute devotion with activity. I'm sinning here, so I'm going to serve you all the more fervently there. I'm doing this sin here, but I'm going to make up for it by doing more for you, God. And we need to know, brothers and sisters, that is despised in the sight of God. It is despised. So David says, you know what? I'm going to put aside the activity. I'm going to zero in on devotion. I'm not offering you. I am offering a sacrifice. You know what that sacrifice is? A broken heart. A contrite heart. I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry, God. When we've sinned against God and devastated lives around us, or even just devastated our life, maybe damaged our relationship with God. And again, I don't mean to God. God doesn't turn away from you, brother or sister. But your fellowship is good. I know, believe me, I've been there so many times. God feels distant. Repentance is the road. What's the difference in David and Saul? Saul was consumed with what people thought. He was consumed with success, or at least trying to look successful. He was totally horizontal. David didn't care that much what people thought. He was concerned about God. David had a soft heart. 
I want to encourage you as we wrap up this morning. If there's, if there's a beautiful quality you want to pursue, it's a soft heart. Have you ever met a person with a hard heart? No matter what happens, they're always hardened in their position, hardened in their, they never ask for forgiveness. They're never wrong. They're never convicted of anything. You can never teach them anything. You know what that is? It's one of two things. Either they really are perfect, which is doubtful, or they have a hard heart. One of the most precious qualities you can pursue, brothers and sisters, is a soft heart. When God convicts, when someone comes to you and speaks truth, you hear it with a soft heart and repent. And God blesses that. He's all over that. It's the best road. I want to ask uh, the band to come back up. I want us to close with that song. It's an old song written out of Psalm 51. Probably many of you know it. As we do, here's what I want to ask you to do. Is just make your chair a seat. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, whatever you want to do. But I want to ask you to make your where you are an altar before the Lord. And if God is convicting your heart of something, I want to ask you to be sensitive and don't resist. Soften your heart. Soften your heart. Allow God to convict you. Soften your heart. And just ask the Lord for forgiveness. Pray some of Psalm 51 or open your Bible and read Psalm 51 quietly to the Lord and pray it to God. And allow God to do what he loves to do, to cleanse you, forgive you, restore that joy.